We're going to continue, as Jason just said, with uh, kind of a Lenten study of this motif of the suffering servant in, oddly, in Jeremiah and in the Gospel of Mark, trying to do kind of an intertextual reading of those two books and the kind of the grand scheme of my presentations are that uh, Mark is intentionally presenting Jesus as a Jeremianic figure. And we're going to get into that more specifically today. I, I me- I've mentioned that, kind of building towards that the last two weeks. And today we're going to um, delve into that uh, quite a bit more. Okay, let's pray as we begin. We give you thanks and praise, our Lord and our God. You are good. Your mercies endure forever. Bless us in this hour, we pray, that we would see Jesus, that we would understand you, our Lord Jesus Christ, through the prophet Jeremiah and through the Gospel of Mark, that we would have a clearer understanding of this season of Lent as we remember and humble ourselves and anticipate your victory over all things and the coming of your kingdom. So bless us in this hour and change us for the sake of the King, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. So last week, we're going to jump around a little bit this week. Um, I worked on this. uh Uh-oh. There we go. Um, We concluded last week, just to rehearse where we were, um, beginning to talk a bit more specifically about the Gospel of Mark. And we pointed out quickly the way that Mark begins, which is very unlike um, the other Gospels, certainly the Synoptic Gospels, and completely different than John begins, just with this arche, kind of the beginning. And I suggested that 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 draws us in as the readers, especially the way the Gospel ends, because the Gospel ends, unlike other Gospels, the Gospel ends so abruptly. And a lot of commentators in the Gospel of Mark will suggest that there is a, a literary and a theological uh, reason that the writer of the Gospel of Mark ends so abruptly in the same way that the Gospel of Mark begins with just, okay, the beginning. And at the end, it's so abrupt, the literary and maybe theological dimension is the readers are drawn into that story. And as we said the first week, so two weeks ago today, one of the real elements of the Gospel of Mark that makes it stand out from Matthew, Luke, and, and John is the Gospel of Mark much less emphasizes the words of Jesus and much more emphasizes the actions of Jesus and draws the readers into the story. We talked then about what this euangelion, this, the, the good news, the gospel, what that means. We looked a little bit at Old Testament background from um, from the Gospel of Isaiah, the fifth gospel, as my professor Al Groves uh, was, would, would love to talk about the fifth gospel. And then the, that immediacy of the gospel of Mark, where everything happens quickly. And your different English translations, will some, some of them will translate that immediately, some of them will translate that word uh, at once or something like that. And the cosmic announcement of the kingdom, we're going to delve into that a little bit more today. And then we concluded last week talking about Mark's 
perspective on suffering. And if you'll recall, the point I was trying to make at the end of last week was many commentators... Oh, I forgot to turn my, my fancy pen. It was great having my son Joel here last week because he said to me, he gave me the highest compliment ever. He said, Dad, you teach like you're a science professor, not a humanities professor, because you use technology. And I was like, yes, I, yeah, that was, I said, just keep repeating that, Joel. Just tell me, tell me more and more and more. So turn on my fancy pen. Um, so what we, we talked about is many commentators will say either the Gospel of Mark is about the kingdom, and then kind of the, the suffering of Jesus is kind of an add-on, or, this is probably the more evangelical approach, the kingdom, basically chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 8, the kingdom presentation is a prologue, and the gospel is really about suffering. And what I tried to suggest last week was bringing those two perspectives together and saying, and this is what we're going to really camp out on this week, rather than saying, well, the kingdom is a prologue to suffering, or uh, the kingdom is what it's about, and then you have, you have the epilogue about suffering. Rather than doing that, I suggested last week that maybe Mark's perspective on suffering brings together those two aspects, and in other words, all the commentators are right. Uh, chapters 1 through 8 are correct. This is the kingdom coming. But, and we looked at this last week. There are even signs there in the, in the kingdom coming narrative that there's suffering involved. And that's how the kingdom comes, is through suffering. And what we're going to look at today is, and then through lament, so just to, uh, to fill out um, just a couple of things that didn't surprise, we didn't have time to get to last week. Uh, and as my son said to me, and jokingly, and teased me all week, Dad, you always, get to, you always have too much material. Do you ever actually get to anything? And I say, yeah, I, I, I cover what I feel like covering at the time. And that's what, the, that's what the lesson is. It's what I feel like covering at the time. So a few things we didn't get to, but I think they're important to fill out the point that I, I finished with last week and just kind of summarized just now. And that initial presentation of Jesus in Mark is, is, again, very unlike the other Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is, is presented, he and this is not unique to me, many commentators bring this out, he immediately begins to cross barriers. And he crosses very Jewish barriers in first century Palestinian Judaism. And, and you can summarize this basically by saying, Jesus is crossing barriers and takes on impurity. And he, he, he will cross those barriers and do things like... Yep. They went to Capernaum, this is chapter 1, verse 21, and when the Sabbath came, well, and then, well, we can, this is not a, this is not a seminar today on the presentation of the Sabbath in the Synoptic Gospels, but that would be a really fun hour to spend with you as well. Suffice it to say for now that Jesus is immediately starting, immediately, 
Jesus is immediately starting to cross the barrier of the Sabbath and redefine Jewish expectations of what the Sabbath should be. So here he comes in to Capernaum on the Sabbath, and Jesus goes into the synagogue and begins to teach. And the people were, Thalmazo, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then, immediately, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, and come out of him. Now, this is arguable, but in first century Judaism, if you have an impure spirit, an unclean spirit in the room, Jesus draws the spirit out. And now the spirit is floating around. And he's done this on the Sabbath. He's immediately crossing these barriers. Listen, and it, it keeps going. As soon as they left the synagogue, this is verse 29, they went on with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they immediately, there's our word again, they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. Okay, first of all, He's touching a woman. Taboo in first century Judaism. He's touching a woman. He's taking impurity onto himself. He's immediately beginning to cross these incredible boundaries. It It keeps going. We're not even out of chapter one yet. Okay? The cosmic son of God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The heavens are split open and the spirit comes down. And Jesus is, what, we looked at last week, sent out into the wilderness. And then when he begins, begins to teach, what does he do? He's crossing, all these, he's crossing all these boundaries. And he's taking, just keeping with our Lenten series a bit, I don't think, this is not a stretch, to me at least, he's taking suffering onto himself at that point. That's what he's doing. Then the big one, and we're still in chapter 1, verse 40. Now this, again, in first century Judaism, this is a big one because it's a skin disease. And if you have a skin disease, where can't you go? To the temple. I mean, you're, you're excluded from, from the community. And a, and a guy with leprosy comes and starts begging Jesus on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. Tough word to translate there. He stretched out his hand. uh Uh-oh. And what does he do? And he touched the man. Jesus touched a person with a skin condition. Now, just think about that for a minute. What does that... Now, theoretically, where can't Jesus go? He can't go to the temple. You see how Jesus is stepping in and taking all these, these conditions on himself. And it, and it keeps going. If you just, I mean, you can, you can flip through uh, the Gospel of Mark. The first three chapters are amazing, actually, at this. Um, a paralyzed man. Um, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, he starts eating 
with people who are not keeping food laws, the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is breaking every barrier down. And again, reading it intertextually with what we're going to do with Jeremiah, he's taking suffering onto himself. And we're anticipating the conclusion of the book, but we're seeing, right? This is why I had this plan for last week and we didn't get there. We're seeing this is how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes for you vocationally as you join the world in the world's suffering and as you bring the salve of the gospel to your place of influence, not staying remote and distant from the world, but engaging with the world's suffering, following Jesus that way. I suggested last week that Perhaps the Gospel of Mark was written uh, early as, in, in, as the, maybe the first Gospel to a suffering community. What, and what, what's the point being made? If the king of the universe who comes with cosmic power, the one who right in the first verse of the book is declared to be the Messiah, is declared to be the king, if he comes and starts crossing boundaries and taking suffering onto himself. Wouldn't you? It's, it's, we're, we're getting there in the Gospel of Mark. Now, don't pretend for a minute, by the way, that this goes real well for Jesus. I mean, it goes very well for Jesus, but that he's not immune from some of the chaos that we're going to begin talking about. So look at chapter 3, verse 6. Um, this is, a, again, he, he crosses a boundary of the Sabbath. And, well, we, can't, we, don't, we don't want to get into first century Jewish debates, but Sabbath-keeping food laws are, were, were two big issues in kind of defining Judaism against non-Jewish people. And Jesus is, Jesus is breaking all of them in the Gospel of Mark. And, and Mark... More than the other Gospels, Mark is emphasizing that. That Jesus is breaking out of a, of a, of a constructed religion in first century Judaism. He's breaking out of that and in, in, a, in a way that's bringing the, bringing the kingdom. And so he heals on the Sabbath in verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, I want you to look, not now, but, you know, your homework for the week. Uh, that was another thing I told Joel, by the way. I said, I have no power over these people that I'm teaching. <laughs> this is, like, awful, because I can't give them assignments, and I can't give them Greek quizzes and all that kind of stuff. So, But your assignment, should you choose to accept it, is to read through the Gospel of Mark. Just read. We, we looked at a couple pericopes just now. Tell me a single thing that Jesus did wrong. What he's doing is he's bringing grace and mercy and healing. He's bringing the power of the kingdom. And they want to kill him. Read on in, verse, in chapter 3, verses 21 um, and 20, uh, 21 and 22. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Uh, Jesus is beginning to be 
isolated. He's also my favorite, probably my favorite pericope in the Gospel of Mark is in chapter 8. Um, this is the pericope immediately preceding um, uh, the confession that you are the Messiah that Peter makes. And that's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says, and he began to explain to them that they had to, he had to go to Jerusalem and be handed over and die and on the third day be raised again. Immediately pr- prior to that, we get this incredible pericope. He, oh, a pericope, sorry. Ah, thanks. But I know that if you, do, if you type out pericope and you have a, a, like an a autocorrect on, micro, it changes it to periscope. So, <laughs> I bet you, knew, you probably knew that too. <laughs> so, a lot of times on PowerPoint slides, it'll say the periscope of, you know, autocorrect again. No, a pericope is a, is a defined narrative unit within a larger story. P E R I C O P E. That's why it changes it to periscope. Yeah, it's a good word. There, it's a pericope. Sorry. I should have said that. I should have just said narrative. Favorite narrative. In, so immediately before this, he feeds 4,000. And he's fed 5,000. Jesus is in the business of, of just feeding. An abundant life is coming. This is very, very prophetic where new creation is coming and people's needs are being met. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. I love the disciples. That's another thing we haven't talked about very much is how the disciples routinely in Mark, more than the other um, Gospels, the disciples are characterized in the, in the Gospel of Mark as just being dull and just not getting it. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf. This is immediately after he just fed 4,000 people. Except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Now, if you just stop with that for a minute. Uh, there, there is humor in the Bible. I, there, there, there is. That is just a silly thing for them. He's mad that we didn't bring bread. They discussed this with one another. It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? And then this is the painful part of this narrative. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes? And this this is Isaiah. Jesus is alluding to Isaiah here. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear. And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. Very symbolic number. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. Very symbolic number. He said to them, do you still not understand you can, I, I, um, Walter Brueggemann, we're going to look at a quote a little, in a little bit from Walter Brueggemann. Uh, he has this great 
um, talk on this, on this narrative from the Gospel of Mark, and he, he talks about being a seminary professor, and when you're standing up teaching a Hebrew class, so Brueggemann's an Old Testament scholar, and you're teaching a Hebrew class, and you're expounding on the theology of something that you're exegeting, you're explaining from the Hebrew text of the Bible, and all your students are looking at you. And, they're, you know, and then you say, and now we're going to parse this verb. You know, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you what stem and aspect, and, you know, like I'm gonna, and then he, and Brueggemann says, and then all of a sudden all the eyes disappear. <laughs> Nobody wants to look at you because they think eye contact is bad when you ask. And, and, and Brueggemann talks about this, this, um, this little narrative and says, it's like the, the apostles who've been, you know, wow, wow, wow. And Jesus says, do you not understand? And their eyes all went like that. So completely uh, misunderstood as well. This is very much uh, like the other presentations, just to jump into Luke for just a moment, the other presentations of Jesus in the Gospels as coming not primarily as a king, not primarily as a priest, though he does, but coming as a prophet. Luke begins this way, when Jesus is quoting not just Isaiah 61, but he, he throws in, this is, a, he, this is a really interesting thing that Jesus does when he, he, picks up the, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, it's handed to him, and he opens it, and he finds Isaiah 61, and he's, and he's reading it, but then he throws in one little line from Isaiah 58. Really fascinating how Jesus is quoting that. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. The anointing, that's a very prophetic uh, motif in the Old Testament. You're anointed to do what? To preach the gospel, and this is Luke here, to preach the gospel to the poor. Not the poor in spirit, not the humble. To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me this is a really fascinating thing that we don't have time to get into. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Um, the captives, the Asir, are, are set free and recovery of sight to the blind. Um, to, and then he quotes from Isaiah 58. So this is all Isaiah 61. And then he throws in this one line from Isaiah 58. To set free those who are what? Those who are oppressed. Those who are bound. And then he concludes, again quoting Isaiah, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What is that? Anybody recognize the word jubilee? It's, it's, this is the jubilee year. And Jesus is saying, I've come to actually proclaim this year. Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God, has what I think is the best exposition of Leviticus chapter 25. That's, that's where the, the Jubilee is explained. And Christopher Wright, who is the chairman of the Langham Fellowship now, it used to be John Stott Ministries, just, uh, his, he has an entire chapter on the Jubilee in that book. Uh, it's, a, it's a massive book. The shipping costs more than the book itself, unless you have Amazon Prime. So if you're going to order Mission of God, first get Amazon Prime, and then you can get free shipping on that. Um, um, but he has an incredible exposition where he's, 
he goes through Leviticus 25 and he says, don't, don't you see how this is completely, this, this favorable year of the Lord is so comprehensive. It's economic. It's agricultural. It's, it's freedom for not just Israel. It's, it's freedom for the aliens and the sojourners, those who have come into Israel from the outside. Let's, let's put it in our modern parlance, for the refugee. It's, it's liberty for the refugee. It's welcoming the refugee. That's what Jesus is coming proclaiming. Um, the, the covenantal issue, the, 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 the intimacy between Yahweh and his people. And Wright, wonderfully in that chapter, brings out this comprehensive picture. And I think Wright is correct. And I think Jesus knows that. And Jesus is saying, this is what's happening now from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. The kingdom is coming. It's happening right now. As you're, as you're looking at it, it's happening. And then he says, it, then he uses his word in Luke 4, it's fulfilled. And all of a sudden, people are amazed and they say, wow, this guy, we, this, this guy is the best. That's a very loose translation of the Greek, um, but it's kind of like that. But then, then Jesus does something crazy. And this is very much in keeping with Mark. In Luke chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, he does something unexpected. So he's loving, I mean, they're all loving him. Uh, they began saying, and, sorry, they spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son? But then look at where he goes. Truly I tell you, he continues, this is verse 24, not 26, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he says something crazy, and he's applying this to what he just read from Luke, um, Isaiah chapter 61 and Isaiah chapter 58. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. Elijah was a prophet of God. Who was he sent to? But to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, all this stuff that I've just read about Isaiah 61 and 58... It's for the sake of the world. It's for the sake of those who aren't in the synagogue right now. And that's okay. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus turns this into mission, and the immediate Again, this is what we've been look, trying to look at. And the immediate result, again, is suffering, being misunderstood. I am coming, announcing the coming of the kingdom for the sake of the world. And they're furious with him, and they want to kill him. Um, let's go to... Yeah, let's go there. So back to... So, so we're... I'm trying to build this understanding 
of the way the kingdom comes is in suffering. And now to tie this back into Jeremiah for the last 15 minutes or so that we have together, um, to tie this back into uh, Jeremiah, the way that Jeremiah gives voice to this chaos. Remember last week we talked about the narrative, we did, we did a, there we go, a chiasm, we did the narrative, then we did poetry, then we did events in the suffering of Jeremiah, and then at the, at the, the center of it, this is going to be for next week, we had consolation, comfort. Today what I'd like to do for the last 15 minutes or so is look at some of this poetry and events. The kingdom is going to come. That's what we looked at last week from both Jeremiah and from the Gospel of, of Mark. The kingdom is going to come, and now here's the way it's going to come. And it's going to come for Jeremiah through suffering. Again, this is a we're, we're trying to draw out, I'm trying to draw out this, I think, biblical motif of the way the kingdom comes, which is a very Lenten thing as we anticipate the resurrection, as we anticipate uh, our celebration on Easter. We do that not through ramping ourselves up and getting more and more and more excited. We do that through what? Is what we've been talking about, through remembrance and humility, through through denying ourselves, and in community, reminding one another of that remembrance and humility. Jeremiah does that very famously in this series, uh, this genre that we talked about briefly last week of laments. Uh, Sometimes they're called the confessions of Jeremiah. I I, I generally like to stick with laments. I think that captures what they are uh, much more accurately. The laments in Jeremiah usually are Jeremiah himself expressing lament. We're going to get to specifics of the genre in a moment. But uh, making a complaint to God and, and describing his enemies. Um, but, but confessing at the same time that God is in control. Individual of the lament. There's also this fascinating reality in the laments of Jeremiah that you also have an incarnational element to this. Uh, the, the, my favorite one, uh, example of this, is Jeremiah 9. Sometimes in the laments of Jeremiah, in these complaints of Jeremiah, he'll be going along and he'll be complaining and you'll say, yeah, I'd complain too. You know? Now, Jeremiah, of course, got set up for this because what is, what is we looked at this text the first uh, week of, of this series. You know, God calls Jeremiah and he says, and I'm going to be sending you to all these people who have all this power. The kings and the priests. And we looked at you know, everyone from uh, Josiah to Zedekiah, those last five kings and these are the power brokers, and this is where you're going to go, and they're not going to like you, and they're going to kill you, try to kill you. That's just that's the way that that's the way the message of the kingdom is going to come. And Jeremiah will go on lamenting, lamenting, and lamenting. Wow, God, you set me up for this. And then there are a couple times it turns, where 
Jeremiah is speaking, and all of a sudden, as a reader, you realize, wait a minute, who's talking here? Jeremiah 9 is my favorite one in this. And there, there are a couple of, like, Berrigan's little comment. It's not really a commentary. It's more a series of essays on the book of Jeremiah, which is a really wonderful little book. Um, at the, the cover art for that book it comes from this verse. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. Now, and you think, that's Jeremiah talking, right? Jeremiah. So on Berrigan's cover art, it's J- Jeremiah the prophet crying. Problem is, you keep reading on in chapter 9, I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Huh. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. You see how you've, you've shifted here from Jeremiah offering the lament to it's actually the Lord himself offering the lament for his people and speaking there anthrop- anthropomorphically, so speaking in human terms describing divine actions and, and, um, and emotions, the Lord himself is weeping. So great is the sin of his people that the Lord that the Lord would, would have a head that were a spring of water and his eyes a fountain of tears. You see, so the laments are individual for Jeremiah in his unique calling, but they also at times take on this incarnational event, uh, uh, element where it seems that Yahweh, the Lord, begins to speak in these same terms of lament. Finally, They'll come back to this in a minute. I'm also convinced that there are eight laments, and they're all in that first section of the poetry about Jeremiah. They're all contained in that section, and there are eight of them, and they're very intentionally arranged. More on that in a minute. So the elements of, a, of the lament that I said we'd get to, let me go through these very quickly. And um, I am going to try to I'll email this presentation to someone who can put it on the Vocare site. I did not do that this week because I was having fun with Joel, who was home from college. So, um, but I'll get to that this week. And he was making fun of me all week, too. But Duke did win, uh, so that made everything better. But also, Carolina won. So that kind of mediated everything for the weekend. So tonight, uh, my wife and I will be sitting on separate couches watching the Duke and the Carolina games. Okay, um, anyway, so I, I will get this to someone. Um, the, these are some elements in a lament. Uh, probably, I mean, Jeremiah is definitely the, the prophetic book that contains the most laments. Really, the, the genre of a lament is really in the Psalms. And there are, depending on who does the number, the, the counting of how many there are, somewhere between 65 and 70 psalms that take on this genre of lament. 
So it's, it's very much a, com it's, a it's like a complaint. We're going to get to whether, why it's not a complaint in a moment. It's a direct address to God. It's a, what did you do to me? Look at what's happened to me. Speaking in a second person to Yahweh. There's a, some sort of a description of anguish. Uh, there's a petition for help. Uh, in, in the Psalms, a lot of the lament Psalms involve some sort of, it's, it's a, a lot of water motifs. So, you know, I'm, the water is coming up over my head. I'm sinking in the miry deeps. It's something like that. Please help me. And please, t t would you please take care of these enemies of mine, please, Lord? Please, because I can't. I'm powerless. I'm powerless. I can't do it. I feel like I'm innocent, Lord. Jeremiah loves to say that. I, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I, I was okay. And then there's a vow to praise and some sort of song of thanksgiving. In the book of Jeremiah, uh, very commonly, there's one more element in the lament that does not occur as much in the Psalms, and that's just because of the genre of the Psalms, and that is Yahweh responds. Here are the, here's a little quote from Walter Brueggemann about whether or not, because Brueggemann, in, in, he has this lovely little book called The Message of the Psalms. And in that book, Brueggemann uh, is arguing at this point that many people believe, many Christians reading the Psalms believe that this might be inappropriate language to complain to God. This is what Brueggemann writes. The use of these psalms of darkness, that's what he talks, lament psalms, psalms of darkness, may be judged by the world to be acts of unfaith and failure, but for the trusting community, their use is an act of bold faith. And then he has this wonderful, albeit a transformed faith. It is an act of bold faith on the one hand because it insists that the world must be experienced as it really is, and not in some pretended way. That's Lent. That's what we do in Lent. We say, we experience, when, when we get the ashes on our forehead, we experience the world as it actually is. You will return to dust. Not as we might pretend it to be. I am powerful. I've got this thing figured out. I make money. I'm beautiful. I have education. I, you know, I have accolades, I have people working for me, I have a nice office, I have whatever. You fill in the blank. We all get the same ashes on our forehead. We don't live in a pretend world in Lent. We live in a real world. On the other hand, it is bold because it insists that all such experiences of disorder are a proper subject for what? For discourse with God. There is nothing out of bounds, nothing precluded or inappropriate. Everything properly belongs in the, this conversation of the heart. To withhold parts of life from that conversation is, in fact, to withhold part of life from the sovereignty of God. Thus, these psalms, these laments, I think Jeremiah is fitting in this genre, make the important connection. Everything must be brought to speech. And everything brought to speech must be addressed to God who is the final reference for all of life. That's what we do in a Lenten season. We give voice to the pain. We, give, we join Jeremiah 
in giving voice to the chaos. Now, the amazing thing about Jeremiah, really, really, really quickly, we're not going to do this. See, now, if Joel were here, he would make fun of me the rest of the week because I'm skipping something that I really wanted to do. But um, you can look at this on the, on the, uh, the, the slide when I give it to you. So there are eight laments. Again, we're, we're not going to go through all of them. And I have, uh, I've looked at these pretty carefully. The first four of Jeremiah's laments, he, he, go, he goes through all those different elements of the laments that we just looked at, and then, and then Yahweh responds to him. Yahweh says something like, I got this. It's okay. I've got this taken care of. The amazing thing in the book, the way that these, these laments are organized, arranged in the book of Jeremiah, remember, we're talking about the, that, those second, that second and third section of the chiasm that we looked at last week, is that God gradually becomes more and more silent as a, as, a, as, a, as a response to those laments in the book of Jeremiah. The last four, you can look all you want, are followed by divine silence, and especially the final lament in chapter 20, verses 14 through 18. It's a brief lament. It is followed by, <laughs> do the math, chapter 21, Amazing how chapter 20 is followed by chapter 21. Um, it's followed by chapter 21, and Jeremiah's lament, is, as I might even say, is ignored. It's dismissed. Like it didn't ever, it didn't ever happen. So even the, the arrangement of the laments in the book of Jeremiah, in my reading of the book of Jeremiah, demonstrate this growing chaos that Jeremiah is, is engaging in, and, and as we just read from Brueggemann, and is giving voice to this chaos, that the way the world really is, not in, we don't live in a pretend Narnia, the way the world really is, we give voice to that. Um, now we're out of time. Ugh. Okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to come back next week because I, I want to set up our, our reading of the, of the center of the book, of the hope of the book, the anticipation, that final element in our, in our Lenten triad of remembrance, humility, and, and uh, anticipation. We'll, we'll begin here next week talking about chapter 28. So maybe this week, if you have time, uh, it, it won't take you very long, I'll take it five minutes, ten minutes. Uh, read through chapter 28. Uh, it's, it, it's only probably really known, well-known, for it's where the yoke is taken off of Jeremiah and Hananiah breaks it. And I want to talk with you a little bit about that next week because there's, a, there's, a, there's one particular element in the narrative in chapter 28 that sets up that very center of the book. So we're not exactly sure probably exactly sure when this took place historically, but the way that the book is laid out in a literary way, it is used to set up that center of the chiasm that will be the fo our focus of attention uh, next Sunday.